Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 48 with me. Psalm 48, it's 14 verses. Psalm 48, we'll start at verse 1. This is the word of God, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. The Lord of the Rings, the greatest trilogy in cinematic history. I want to take you to a scene out of the second movie in that trilogy, The Two Towers. The scene introduces us to the capital city of Gondor called Minas Tirith. And the way the director opens that scene, it's a wide shot of the whole city. It's from probably a mile out. And what you take in with this probably 10-second shot is that this city is not a normal, flat, single-level city. This city is nestled against a mountain. So as the mountain rises, the city rises with it. So it's not just large in length or width, but it's also large in height. And another thing in this 10-second shot of this city that you see is that it has a very large outer wall of it. And you don't just realize it's got one large outer wall, but within the city, as the city rises with the mountain, there's other walls inside of the city, meaning it's a well-fortified city. Another distinction is that the whole city, the walls, the buildings, are all made out of a very beautiful white stone, making it look very distinct. And the director in this 10-second shot gives us this, these, all these details, wanting us to walk away thinking, wow, that's a great-looking city. And I open this way because the psalmist in Psalm 48 gives us a lot of details about Zion, the city of our God. But yet the psalmist doesn't want us to walk away thinking, wow, that's a great city. The psalmist gives us all of these details so that we walk away thinking, those details point to the greatness of God. Look down at verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
So all the details and everything that the psalmist points out description-wise in this psalm, just remember that it's not the city the psalmist wants us walking away thinking is great. It's the details pointing to the greatness of God. That's where we want to start, and that's where we'll end. Verses 1 through 3 tell us about these details of a city, and we establish that this city is Zion, Zion being God's visionary city, his heavenly city, sometimes referred to as the New Jerusalem. And verses 1 through 3 gives us five or six descriptions or details of this visionary city of God. Verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Two things to take away from that. The first being Zion, the visionary city, belongs to God. It's God's city. The second being the people within the city that are praising God, their God is God. We see that from the pronoun of our God. Another description we have of this Zion is it's as his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. This speaks to God's holiness, that not only is God holy, but his city is holy as well. Far above sinful man, it's beautifully elevated, which kind of thinks that it's contradicting the next detail that we see in verse 2, that Zion is the joy of all the earth. How could God's city Zion be elevated above the earth, far above sinful man, but yet at the same time be the joy of all the earth? Isaiah 2.2 gives us a little more insight. Insight. Isaiah 2.2 says, It shall be known in the latter days that the house of the mountain of the Lord shall be established on the highest of the mountains. It shall be above the hills, and all the nations shall flow into it. So God's city, Zion, will be established at the highest point, and yet at the same time, all the nations will pour into it. God will still be able to pour out his joy through the city to all the nation, peoples of all nations. If we continue on, Mount Zion in the far north. Now the ESV has a translation in the far north, and some would take that to mean that it's on the north side of the mountain. But there's others that would translate the word north in the Hebrew language to mean zaphon, Z-A-P-H-O-N, zaphon. And zaphon was believed to be the name of the mountain that the Canaanites used to believe their false god Baal worshipped on. So if we take another translation, some of your texts, the CSB has it as Mount Zion, the summit of Zaphon, meaning that God's city, the mountain God's city resides on, is above the city or the residence that false gods reside on. And this speaks well into the next description of God's city. It's the city of the great king, Jesus, the king of kings. Jesus, the only king that could reign in God's city, is far above false gods like Baal and Allah and Buddha and all the rest. Verse 3, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And if we look at or run it through the last two verses, we see this of God making himself known as a fortress in Zion, his holy mountain. So any attacking army could not even touch the mountain because they would be sinful, they would die. Beautiful in elevation. Even if an attacking army could get on the mountain, 
they would have to attack from below, always going up to the city. The joy of all the earth, why would any attacking army want to attack a city that's described as the joy of all the earth? In the far north, being above any other city, no city could look down on God's city. And it has a great king, the king of kings, Jesus. Within this city, God has made himself known as a fortress. Looking at these details in verses 1 through 3, again, remember, it's not the details pointing to the greatness of the city. The details are pointing to the greatness of God. In verse 4, now our perspective turns. And now we see people outside of the city. And I imagine that the psalmist wants us to be thinking of, let's say, a soldier on the walls of the city. Because you look down at verse 4, it says, For behold, and there's some translations that say, Look! And so I imagine a soldier on the walls of the city and looking out into the field saying, Look out! And everybody within the city looks out, and they see the kings assembling. They're coming together outside of the city. And the verbiage here, assembling, coming together, it's not kings coming together to tour the city or to gaze in awe and wonder at the city. This verbiage means military formation. They're coming on to attack the city. They're coming together to destroy the city. And now in verse 5, the shift. Now we see the perspective of these kings assembling, these people outside of the city coming together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Other translations have adjectives that say fear froze them. Trembling seized them. What is it that they saw? Verse 5, they saw it. Notice that the psalmist does not go into any specific detail here. The psalmist just went through specific detail of what Zion looks like in verses 1 through 3. But when it comes to what the king saw, they saw it, is all the psalmist describes. And I believe that what they ended up seeing was the whole of the city, all of the details pointing to the greatness of God. That's what seized them with terror. That's what froze them with fear. It wasn't any one particular thing. It was the greatness of of God that made them turn and flee. Verse 6 goes on. Anguish as of a woman in labor. Now, the last lesson that I did, Pastor Jeff noted me and said, you didn't go into enough details with the metaphor that you had. You didn't expound enough on it. You should have done better with that. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So when I got this text, I was like, really excited because this text has the metaphor of anguish as a woman in labor. So I'm thinking like, I just went through that. Carmel and I, we just went through the pain of labor, right? Exactly, a lot of nodding heads, good. So I'm telling Carmel these details of how much detail I'm going to give you guys to show Pastor Jeff I can expound on a metaphor. And she says to me, what you mean that we went through that pain? <laughs> so half of you understand what this is, and the other half of us have no idea. We don't have any clue. So we're going to quickly move on to verse 7. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. This is the same Tarshish that we saw in Jonah. So it's a common or a, a very large trading port. 
a lot of ships that went out with merchandise, goods uh, to go and to collect money or whatnot to trade, that kind of thing. Nobody really knows where exactly it was, but most people believe it was on the west side of the Mediterranean, somewhere along the coast of Spain. And so a ship leaving Tarshish to go trade, more than likely they would need to be going east on the Mediterranean. So a great east wind or an east wind storm would be devastating for them because they would be going against where they're heading. Great east wind storm was known to break up bows. It was known to shatter ships. And that's the feeling that the psalmist wants us to get. These kings are assembling to attack. These people are coming together with the hopes of wanting to destroy God's city. And as soon as they see God's greatness, their hopes are shattered. It's not the details of a city that point to the greatness of the city. It's the details that point to the greatness of God. But how does this text apply to us? Because again, we're talking about Zion, the visionary city of God, the heavenly city of God. We can't go on a vacation to Zion. We can't walk about it. We can't go and look at it. So how does this text apply to us? At the time the psalmist wrote this text, Jerusalem was believed to be the visionary city of God. So the difference between visionary and, I'm sorry, Jerusalem was believed to be the visual city of God. And the difference between visionary and visual, obviously, is visual you can see. So God established Jerusalem as his city here on earth. And there's many uh, reasons to believe that. One, Jerusalem had the temple where God's people could go and worship God and praise God within his temple. Another reason is because Jerusalem was known as the city of kings. Saul reigned from there. David reigned from there. Other kings of Israel reigned from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was also known to have been miraculously protected by God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this. But Jerusalem is no longer the visual city of God. The reasons for this is because Jerusalem was completely sacked twice over. The temple burned down twice over, first by the Babylonians, second by the Romans. Jerusalem's no longer the city of great king. Jerusalem isn't reigned over, does not have a king that reigns over it. So Jerusalem is no longer the visual city of God. So again, it leaves us with how does this text apply to us? When Jesus came, he established his church as the visual city of God. Revelations 21.2 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John, the writer of Revelation, says he saw New Jerusalem, the visual city of God, coming down out of heaven, and he describes it as prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, which sounds awfully familiar. Ladies, you studied this on Monday. Ephesians 5, Paul tells the Ephesians that the church is the, the bride of Christ. When Jesus came, he established his church as the visual city of God. Let's run through verses 1 through 3 again and think about the church being the visual city of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the church of our God. 
The church belongs to God. Check. The people within the church, their God is God, and they praise God within the church. Check. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Now, we can't take this literally because the church does not sit on a literal holy mountain. But what I am saying is the church does sit on a holy foundation. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, on this rock, I will build my church. The church sits on a holy foundation, beautiful in elevation. We see beauty in elevation within the church. And I want to be careful here because what I am not saying is a Christian within the church has steps to take. And the more steps you take, the higher you get or the closer you get to God. That's not what, at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there is a beautiful elevation in God's transforming power of taking a sinner and turning them into more and more like Christ. Membership testimonies were completely new when I first got to this church to me. But membership testimonies do a number of different things. Two things I want to point out, the first being a person is able to give their salvation testimony, and the church body then affirms, you are a brother or sister in Christ. The second being that the church body gets an idea of where did God start with this sinner? Where was the starting point that this sinner first got new life? And then over the years, as we grow together, as we continue to walk with God together, as we continue to worship him, to serve him together, to praise him together, we bear witness to this transforming power that only God and God alone can do. This beautiful elevation that God does through us. The church is the joy of all the earth. We see this in the universal church sense of God allowing his church to reach places that were unreachable, to go to places that weren't even on the map, to be able to translate his word, to spread his gospel to places that did not know the common tongue or the common language. God has allowed his church, his gospel, to go to the ends of the earth. And we here at Union Lake Baptist Church, we are blessed to be a part of that. We've sent out our own to go and share the gospel, to go and share the joy. We support missionaries in Detroit, Little Rock. You go across the Caribbean, Haiti, across the Atlantic, Poland, across the Pacific, Japan. We are able to be blessed with seeing and being a part of sharing this joy that God bestows through his church. But if you also think back to Isaiah 2.2, the nations shall pour into his city. They'll flow into it. Even that we have been able to be a part of. God has blessed us in that way. Because if you think about our membership, even if you just look around the room right now, the different nationalities that we have here, we have Haitians, we have Africans, we have Chinese, Lebanese, Taiwanese, Japanese, we have Korean, Malaysian, rednecks from Alabama. We even have... We even have those hard-to-reach places, hard, stubborn-headed people because they live in a boring place like Ohio. We have places for people from all nations, and God has blessed our church right here, Union Lake Baptist Church, being able to receive people from all nations, 
because his joy is going out into the world, to the ends of the earth. What a day it would be that if visitors came into this church and they did not look around and say to themselves, wow, this place has a lot of diversity here. Like this place is really open-minded about diversity. What a day it would be if people came into this church and said, there's a lot of different nationalities here. There's a lot of different diversity here. Look at the greatness of God. Look at what God's word is doing here and how he is flowing the nations into this church right here. Oh, that we are blessed in that way. The church is the city of the great king. Jesus, the king of kings. Jesus, who laid his life down for his church, is our king. And he didn't just lay his life down. He didn't just sacrifice himself and go to the great and then raise himself up again. What a great king. But he did not just do that. He has promised us that when we go to the grave, he will raise us up again. What a great king. He is not just a king who has authority in his church. He's not just a king who governs his church. He's a king who listens to our prayers. He's a king who speaks to us with his word. What a great king. Within these church walls, we remind ourselves of his salvation, that he and he alone can provide that it was nothing that we did to deserve this salvation. It was nothing that we did to earn this salvation. But he calls us only to repent of our sin, only to turn, leave everything behind, and follow him. What a great king. I would pause here and ask, is Jesus your king? Because, friend, if you have never repented of your sin, if you have never turned and trusted in him and admitted that it is not within you to earn salvation, but it is only in what he has done, friend, if that has never happened, then Jesus is not your king. If that has never happened, then friend, you are outside of the city walls. You are as the people who assemble together, as they come together. You are with the enemy of God. Verse 3, within the church, God has made himself known as a fortress. We heard about this last week in Acts 6, the baby church just starting out in Jerusalem. The baby church coming across the problem, and God protects his church. If you continue reading on, you hear about it time and time again, problems coming up. The church spreads from Jerusalem into the surrounding regions and throughout and time and time again, problems arise, and we hear of God protecting his church, God making himself known as a fortress. If you think about the church history, we hear time and time again of God protecting the sanctity of his word, the great reformation. We hear of God making himself known as a fortress. And if you think about our own church right here, Union Lake Baptist Church, we have seen God as a fortress, even here. We have a testimony that points to God protecting his bride of Christ church, his overall church. 
we have a testimony that points to his greatness in that way. That is a blessing. I shared this last month. It's my favorite story that the senior saints will tell us. Years ago, they were challenged to look around and to realize there are very few young families here. And they were challenged. If you do not do something, then when you die, this church will die with you. And I just want to point out what they did not do. They did not go out and hire a band. They didn't go out and hire a vocalist. They didn't go out and put an ad in a billboard. They realized that there was nothing in their own power that they could do to save this church. And so they prayed. In full humility, they prayed and said, it is only in God's power. It is only in his protection that this church would be saved if it was his will. God has made himself known as a fortress even here in our local body. He has given us that blessing. Because in the last four years, there have been 11 newborns through this church body. And again, it's only the beginning of March, so I say this carefully. <laughs> there might be people here who are pregnant and don't even realize it. There might be people here who God has ordained to become pregnant and don't even know it. And I say it carefully because what I mean is there's still at least nine more months in this year. So only three that we know of, but that's all I'll say. Seriously, though, realize that it's not the senior saints having these babies. Realize that God in the last four years has brought 11 families under the age of 50 to this church body. Praise God, because that's only what God and God alone can do. It's not the details of the church that say, look how great that church is. It's the details of the church. It's the testimonies of the people that point to how great God is. As we have heard, so we have seen. I think I am the first teacher who gets to teach, at least in the psalm series, on what selah means. It's not anything big. It just means pause. Or to the choir master or the music director, interlude. That's all it means. Pause to let the listener reflect on what has just been said. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Realize that that's exactly what we have just done. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your church. If you jump down to verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad, or in the here and now, let the church be glad. Church family, after sitting on God's steadfast love, after meditating on him protecting even our own local body church here, is there gladness in your heart right now? Verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. 
sitting on God's steadfast love, meditating on his greatness with gladness in our hearts, there is a call to go outside the city walls. There's a call to go out and praise his name to the ends of the earth, to go to the enemies of God, the people outside of the city walls, and to tell them we have a great king. To tell them that we have a king who gave his life up for us, who speaks to us, who listens to our prayers, to go and tell them that you do not have to be an enemy of God, that you can turn in faith, that you can repent from your sin, and you can have this great king that we have as well. There's a call to do this. And if you look at verse 11, let the daughters of Judah rejoice. The daughters of Judah was a common phrase used to describe the cities and villages outside of Jerusalem. So again, this picture of going outside of the city, going outside of the church, their response is rejoicing. So in our day here today, it would be Union Lake Baptist Church family, go out to Wixom, go out to Milford, go out to West Bloomfield and White Lake and tell the people about our great God, about our great King and what he has done for us. He laid his life down, he picked it right back up, and he's promised to do the same for us. And their response will be rejoicing. A complete contrast to verse 4 through 7. It will not be terror, it will not be fear, but there will be those that hear and rejoice. The God, God, God gifts different people with different gifts and uses those gifts to bless the church. And I bring this up because I feel if Pastor Pierre was teaching on this text, he would spend more than three or four minutes on these three verses because Pastor Pierre has a mindset of evangelism. God has gifted him with that. And I, I make that known because I just tell you that God has not necessarily gifted me with a mindset of evangelism. He's gifted me more with a mindset of inside the church. We raise one another up. We disciple one another. We build one another up on the word. And so I just point this out to say, I do not mean to only spend three or four minutes on these three verses to say it's not as important. Evangelism and sin and Steadfast love, meditating on God's steadfast love, they go hand in hand. Being inside the church and worshiping God and then going out and praising God's name and telling them about our great king, they go hand in hand. One is not greater than the other. So I just point that out to say, time limit-wise of a Sunday school, I'm only spending three or four minutes on these three verses, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. It doesn't mean that the psalmist doesn't call us to go out. Go to the ends of the earth. Go and share God's name and hear the response of rejoicing. And so with that said, let us go look at verse 12 and 13 and come back to viewing within the city walls, within the church. Verse 12, walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Towers, ramparts, citadels, those are words of fortification. And we can't look at this in the literal sense because the only fortification we have on this church are locks on our doors. And half of those don't work. We need to fire the properties leader. 
but towers, ramparts, citadels from the figurative sense. Those are the testimonies of the church, the testimonies of the people within the church testifying to God's greatness, testifying to his great salvation that he provides through the king, Jesus. The protection, the towers, the ramparts, the citadels are the testimonies that point to what he has done throughout the years. They don't point to the person. They point to the greatness of God. One-third of our membership is over the age of 65, which, medically speaking, in the next 15 years, God is going to call home many of our brothers and sisters. And there's two things I want to say about that. The first being family discipleship night. In the last year, I have noticed that there are many senior saints who had regularly been attending family discipleship night who haven't been showing up lately. And I know the excuse is not COVID because I know what most of you think about COVID. But I'm asking you to come back. I'm asking you to keep coming to Family Discipleship Night. The testimonies that you have to the years of experience that God has given you, that's what protects this church. That's what points the church to God's greatness. And so I'm asking you to realize this, that you are our towers, that you are this church's citadels, I'm asking you to take every opportunity you have to share the greatness of God that you have seen with us because you prayed for us and God has sent us. Your work is not done. God has not called you home. yet. The second thing I want to say, I firmly believe that the hardest trial a Christian goes through is death. And it's not the momentary act of you close your eyes, the air leaves your lungs for the last time. It's not the momentary act that's the hardest. It's the process of death. It's the realization that you are not going to live forever. Your strength is failing you. Your mind is fading. During those days, during those years, that is when a Christian's faith really gets put to the test. So with that said, younger generation, how ready are you to come alongside our senior saints and to remind them that we have a great king? We have a king who has promised us that when we close our eyes for the last time, when we go to that grave, we will open our eyes in the presence of God. And because of his work and his work alone, he will speak to us as if we are his children because we are his children. How aware are you? And when I say younger generation, I mean everyone under the age of 65, just so we're clear. How aware are you that we have that blessing to come alongside our senior saints and to pray with them, to remind them of the glory that we are able to share because of our great King? that we have a great king who sacrificed himself and has promised us that we will share in his salvation.
That is our great king. Our king forever and ever. He will guide us even unto death. It is not the testimony that will point to you. It's the testimony that points to the greatness of God. It's not the testimony of the church or the details of the church that point to the greatness of the church. It's the details that point to the greatness of God. Let's pray.